So I'm going to continue on with the series on what the Bible has to say about politics and in particular self-governance. We've talked about self-governance having three pillars. The rule of law was what we did last week and it's the first big pillar. Rule of law started off right in the Garden of Eden and God made one rule. That was how it started. Then we spoke last week about how God set up Israel based on rule of law. He went to Mount Sinai. Basically the, the Ten Commandments divide the rule of law into two critical components. The first four commandments which say God gets to make the rules and nobody else's rules really count because God is going to design the world with cause effect. So today we're going to talk about the second pillar which is the consent of the governed, dispersed decision making based on consent of the governed. That's the second pillar of self-governance. And what we're going to look at is how God organized Israel around consent of the governed how God organized the church around the consent of the governed, and how he organized the United States around the consent of the governed. So first, let's look at how did God organize Israel around consent of the governed. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 16, we'll start there. Now, Deuteronomy, of course, is what Moses charges the Israelites before they go into the land. They're just on the edge of the promised land, ready to go in. This is the group that's been through the 40 years in the wilderness and the first generation has died. And he's giving them the law the second time. And so Deuteronomy 16 verse 18 says, You shall appoint for yourself judges and officers in all your towns, which the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes. And they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not distort justice, you shall not be partial, and you shall not take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall pursue, that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. So this is one of God's admonitions. You shall appoint for yourself judges. Now, why didn't God appoint the judges? Surely he knew best, didn't he? He would have known who the best judges would be. But if God appointed the judges, what would have been missing? The consent of the governed. See, what he's asking is, you choose judges you want. Now, what I want you to do is choose judges that have the character to be servants. What's the key distinguishing factor between a self-serving judge and a serving judge? Well, the self-serving judge is going to take bribes. Because what's the self-serving judge mainly going to be interested in? Yeah, what's in it for me? Uh, Judge, we have this dispute between uh, party A and party B. Well, which one can pay the most? Which one can do something for me? That's who I'm going to decide for. If you have that kind of justice, your land's going to be perverted. You're not going to have a self-governing culture. You're going to have a tyranny. And there's going to be oppression. There's no other option. On the other hand, if you have judges that pursue just righteousness, just justice. That's all they pursue. And they do what's right, not what's in their best interest. They follow the law, not political expediency. Then you're going to have a land that's full of righteousness. Let's look at an episode that took place during the time of the judges in Judges chapter 5. So you have this instituting of self-governance that God sets in, rule of law, Mount Sinai. 
consent of the governed here where he says choose for yourself judges. By the way, among the towns, so there's not just one judge, there's judges around the country, but apparently there's a Supreme Court of some sort that develops because during this time of self-governance, we call the judges, the period of the judges, there are some judges that kind of elevate to national status. And in Judges chapter 5, we have this episode of Deborah and Barak. We'll look at the story in a second, but I want to look at what they say after they've had this great victory. Chapter 5 of Judges, verse 1, Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day, this is the day of victory, saying, When leaders led in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. After they have this big victory, what they're mainly praising God for is two things. That the leaders led and that the people willingly offered themselves. Now what is embedded in the notion of leaders leading and people willingly offering themselves? It's consent of the governed. It doesn't say when the leaders went and coerced people and gave one rifle to three people and then had somebody in the back of the three people saying, if you turn and run, we'll shoot you, as the Soviet Union did in World War II. And the two guys that said, I don't have a rifle, said, what do we do? Well, when the guy in front of you dies, pick the rifle up because they fought as slaves. They didn't have a choice. No, people willingly offered themselves. And the leaders led. What these leaders are doing is taking a risk. Because if you lose a battle like this as a leader, you're likely to end up with your eyes poked out or or worse. Well, here's the story. Look back at chapter 4. It says, When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, so this is what happens. God chooses cause effect. We choose who we trust, our perspective, the actions we take. God chooses cause-effect. So the cause-effect is when we don't follow God's way, there's negative consequences. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. So tyranny comes in. When we won't be self-governing, we'll get tyranny. And that's, that's the case in our personal life. One of the fruits of the Spirit is self-governance, self-control. When we don't have self-control, what are we going to give ourselves into? An appetite of some kind, right? If we give ourselves into an appetite... What's always going to happen? We're going to have an addiction of some kind. We're going to have a dependency of some kind. And we're going to become enslaved. We're going to become a part of a tyranny. We're, we're going to be oppressed. It's because we didn't follow God's way. We weren't self-governing. So the commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in some place that's unpronounceable. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron. So in other words, this guy is undefeatable. He's got too much military power. So for 20 years, he harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Harshly oppressed. We'll look at that phrase again in a second. Harshly oppressed. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. So she's the Supreme Court, I guess. She also happens to be speaking on behalf of God. She's a prophetess. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel and the mountains of Ephraim. If only our Supreme Court would meet under a tree, I think things would be better. And the children of Israel came up for her for judgment. And she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor? Take with you ten thousand men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun. And against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude, and river at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. 
Oh, it's interesting that she does that in the form of a question. Hasn't God said this? And Barak said to her, if you'll go with me, then I'll go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Now, it's interesting here. We've got a, a military commander who says to this woman, I'll go if you'll go with me. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? Have you ever heard that before? Yeah, you've probably heard it many times, right? But usually from a four-year-old boy. So she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there'll be no glory for you in the journey you're taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to do this if you'll go, but I'm going to make sure that the victory is actually won by a woman because you're such a wimp. But, But he does do it. He does do it. So Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and he went up with 10,000 men under his command. Deborah went up with him. Then the rest of the story, they had this battle, and Sisera runs away, and he goes to this neighboring ally, and this lady says, oh, come on into my tent. And he says, if somebody comes and asks, you know, if I'm here, just tell them I'm not. She says, no problem. You know, give me, I'll put you some covers here, have a big glass of milk. And he goes to sleep, and she takes a tent peg and drives it through his temple so that he's pegged to the ground. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know many women that could take a tent peg and drive it through the head of a man. But, you know, one time we were in a house in Boston that was uh, during the Revolutionary War period. It was set up like that. And they had some irons there that the women used to iron the shirts and stuff. And this iron was like a 15-pound barbell. And I thought, you know, those women back then, you wouldn't, wouldn't have been women to be trifled with. And so I think we're just used to that the, you know, women in uh, tight pants doing exercises or whatever means, <laughs> means healthiness and vitality these days. But, eh, you know, that, that's nothing compared to what life used to be like. Just like, oh, you know, I do this tent stuff all the time. <laughs> So that's what happens on that, and on that day it says God subdued Jabin. And then they go to Judges chapter 5 and they say, Blessed be the Lord because today the leaders led and the people volunteered. And that's self-governance right there. Because God said, I need you to do this. Now the leaders could have said, and Barak was kind of on that, I'll go but only under this condition. Okay, I'll meet that condition. I'll let you have a woman with you. But the leaders, he said, go and take on Jabin. 900 chariots. Now, okay, you can say he's a wimp because he took a woman with him, but he's still risking his life. He's still risking his life because from a human perspective, that wasn't going to be a winning formula. But see, God called them to do it. They had Deborah the prophetess. And so what's the key thing here? They trusted her word. So they're choosing who to trust and who are they going to trust? God. So that's the core choice that we make. Who do we trust? And they're making the right one. And then they go into battle and they win. And 10,000 people trusted Deborah's word too. And they didn't have iron chariots. But they went into battle and they did what they were asked to do. So see, when they come to 1 Samuel 8 and they say, hey, give us a king because this volunteering to go to war stuff sucks and we want a king that will have a standing professional army that will do it for us. And, and Samuel says, well, you know, you know that he'll draft your kids to do that, right? Yeah, yeah, but we want somebody to fight our battles for us. Uh, you know, this judging and not taking bribes and all that, that's hard work. And, you know, you just end up under a tree all day. Uh, well, why don't you get us a king that will do that for us? I mean, like a, some professionals, some experts. 
That way we don't have to do all that hard work. Well, you know what's going to happen, right? They're going to take your land and give it to their friends. That's going to turn into cronyism, and you're going to say, God, this is perverted to justice. And you're going to get exactly what you asked for. Well, you know what's going to happen. Yeah, but that's what we want. It's because Israel rejected self-governance that they ended up under oppression. Well, here we see a picture when the leaders led, the people willing to offer offering themselves. Notice that these people came from two tribes. So here you've just got a handful of people from the whole nation saving the nation. And that's always the way it is. It's always a remnant, it's just a handful that stand up. A handful of leaders, a handful of people that will follow the Lord always makes the difference. Well, let's look at the next chapter, chapter 6, and we can see another story of self-governance and the consent of the governed. And the children of Israel did evil inside the Lord again, so the Lord delivered them in the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains, a place to hide. So it was whenever Israel had sown, they planted their crops, Midianites would come up, and the Amalekites and the people east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkeys. So these people would come in and either steal the crops or burn them. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous locusts. Both they and their camels were without number, and they'd enter the land to destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. So here's the harsh oppression. They're basically just taking their sustenance from them. So they would take what little they could and hide it in the caves. And the Midianites would come in that would destroy everything. And so they're just, just barely getting by, I suppose. And it came back to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites. The Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and I delivered you out of the hands of the Egyptians. Don't fear these gods, but you've not obeyed my voice. Verse 11, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abra. Abia's right, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites. So here's Gideon, and he's in the wine press threshing wheat because he could hide it from the Midianites. This is one of their strategies to keep from having their wheat stolen. So would you say at this point Gideon is courageous or kind of cowardly? Well, you know, maybe you could say he's correct. Yeah, maybe he's what's wise. I mean, he has the reality that he's going to starve to death if he doesn't do something. And so he's actually, you know, at least he hadn't run. He's still there and he's trying to hide his, his uh, wheat, but he's not fighting. And so then, uh, verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord's with you, you mighty man of valor. And you can just imagine uh, Gideon standing up and this guy says, You mighty man of valor. And Gideon says, You know, who, me? Are you talking to me? uh, Are you talking to somebody else? And then Gideon said to him, O Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our fathers told us about? Didn't he bring us up from Egypt? Verse 14, Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? And then, of course, the angel of the Lord lets Gideon know that it's him. So Gideon says, okay, I'll do it. So he actually was a mighty man of valor. He just didn't know it. It took faith and following what God asked him to do to learn, hey, I'm a mighty man of valor. The first job that God gives him to do is go tear down some altars of Baal. And he does it, but at night. So maybe he won't get caught and killed because he's expecting he's going to get trash for doing that. His dad intervenes for him to keep him from getting killed. 
And then, of course, you know the story that God has the 10,000 people come down who volunteered. He has them drink at the spring of Gideon. And the ones that picked up the uh, water in their hands are the only ones, because God says, too many. Too many. Now, you know, there's, there's a vast number, hundreds of thousands of Midianites over there. And he says, 10,000, too many. Because I don't want you to get the wrong idea about what happened here. See, I want to I deliver in such a way that everybody understands the contrast here, the power of man, power of God. And so he ends up with 300. And then he says, I want you to stand in a ring around these 200,000 people. And I want you to break your torches, you know, break the lamps and hold up the torches and yell. I don't know about you. But if I knew I was only one of 300 and there's 200,000 soldiers in front of me, and I'm going to hold up my torch and say, here I am, outnumbered 1,000 to 1, I would be a little reluctant. But God had selected people who are willing to trust Him. That's really all He wanted. Will you trust me? Will you trust me and will you hold your light up? That's really what He wanted to know. Will you trust me and hold your light up? I'll do the rest. See, this is the pattern. Self-governance almost never means everybody does what's right in the sight of the Lord. What it usually means is the leaders lead and some people volunteer. And those some people, if they'll just hold their light up, it can hold the whole country together. So the first thing that is worth thinking about with consent of the governed is when God organized Israel... He said, choose from your, among yourself judges. And then he rewarded and encouraged them when the leaders led and the people volunteered. A side note about this, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, when God tells Adam, I'm going to make one law, so this rule of law, and I'm going to let you choose. You can trust me, you can trust yourself, or whoever else shows up. You can adopt the perspective I ask you to adopt. You can, create, you can adopt your own perspective. And you can either eat of the tree or not. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk with you in the evening and then I'm going to veil myself. I'm going to go away where you can't see me so that you can make a choice uncoerced. Why? Why did God do that? He could have just stayed with you. Why wasn't he a helicopter God? <laughs> Because, you know, look at all the bad stuff that happened because of the choice that Adam made. See, he didn't want to be a helicopter guy. He wanted him to choose on his own. What would we we call that? See, I want you to follow me because you want to. See, this consent of the governed is the way God rules the universe. I'm making this cause of... God, I'll make the cause effect. But you, my creation, I'm going to let you decide... Whether you want to consent to this or you want to follow your own way. I'm going to tell you very clearly what happens if you follow your own way. But I'm going to let you make the choice. C.S. Lewis, he has one of his characters say in The Great Divorce, Freedom is the gift whereby you most resemble your maker. When we're making choices, we're most like God. No wonder Satan loves tyranny. No wonder Satan loves slavery. Because the essence of tyranny and slavery is you don't get to make any choices. And then we're least like our Creator. So then, of course, you know the story in Genesis 3. Someone comes along and says, Indeed, has God said? Are you really going to adopt God's perspective? You need to have your own perspective. Are you really going to trust God? You really need to trust yourself. 
Are you going to choose what God asks you to do? Why don't you choose something your own way? Because look at all these benefits that you could have if you'll just have the perspective that you know best. And of course, you know what happened from that. We get to choose our own choices. God chooses the consequences. He made it very clear, didn't he? In the day you eat this, there'll be death. Two of the deaths that happened in that day was exile, which is a form of death. They were exiled from the garden. And a whole host of separations, including man from himself. The woman that you gave me had a denial of reality right off the bat. So this consent of the governed is deeply embedded in Jewish history. So God organized Israel around consent of the governed. How about the church? How did God organize the church? Our second point. Well, let's look at John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verse 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So here you've got Jesus who, and let's just flip over to Matthew 28, which is where we'll go next anyway. Matthew 28, verse 18, the Great Commission. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So here you've got Jesus now who has won all the authority of all the earth. He's now the King of the earth. So he's always been the king of the universe because he's God. But now he's the king of the earth as a man. And he won that through obedience even to death on the cross. And he says, all authority has been given to me. So here's what I'm going to do as your new king that's in authority over all the earth. I'm going to go now. (laughs) I'm taking off. And the reason I'm taking off is because we can be a lot greater if I'm gone. Because now you can do more than I could do. Is that not the weirdest thing you've ever heard? Just think of a conquering king. And he comes in and now he's the king of all the known world. And he says, glad that we got that done. Taking off now. I'm just going to go and kind of go to an island someplace because you'll do better with it. It doesn't really make any sense from a human conquering standpoint. But see, Jesus has a different thing in mind. He's got now the church. And let's see who he deputizes to do all this massive ruling that he's won all authority on the earth. Well, who does he want to exercise this authority on his behalf? All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you. Okay, did he say imposing upon them all things? Did he say forcing them to do all things? Teaching them to do all things. What does that mean? It's an invitation. So God now has all authority, or Jesus has all authority invested in him. And he says, I'm giving it to you, and I'm leaving because that will make it bigger and better. And what I'm asking you to do is teach others to obey the commandments. Now, is that not the ultimate consent of the governed? There's no coercion in there. He deputized everyone to do this. Could you disperse the authority any more than this? He disperses the authority completely and then says, I want you to invite people to choose to follow. That's what teaching means. I want you to make disciples. Disciple just means learner. A learner is someone who chooses to follow because they understand. 
So God organized a church wholly around self-governance. Teach them to obey. Now you can't get any more dispersed decision making than that. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 5 and we'll see, well, what about leadership? There's leadership in the, in the church, isn't there? Well, yes, there is. But look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders, that's a, a translation of the Greek word presbyterios or something like that. Is that more or less right, Brandon? And they, sometimes they translate this word bishop. Sometimes they translate this word pastor. It's always the same word. It means the people that are in charge. Well, look what it says in verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those that labor in the word. What's he talking about here? Well, because the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. So why would you not muzzle the ox while it's treading the grain? Muzzle it. If you muzzle it, what can't happen? It cannot eat, right? So let it eat while it works. So the elders ought to be able to eat while they work. So you ought to pay them. Who's deciding the pay? The people. You decide how much they ought to get. Because they ought to get something. Now how would you like it if the government said, Hey, if we're doing a good job, pay us some taxes. You know, if, if we're not doing a good job, we understand that we wouldn't. But if we're, if we're ruling well, then pay us taxes. The better we rule, the more you should pay. I would be for that. <laughs> Let's get that tax code. Because then that's 100% consent of the governed, isn't it? So yes, we have leaders, but the leaders are completely leading because people submit themselves to them. We've had times in the era of the church where they tried to make it coercive, but it always fell apart. Because that's not how God organized the church. He deputized everyone. He wants everyone to serve Him because they choose to do so. And the leaders lead because they are serving. They rule well. And they get support because people honor them for doing so, not because they have to. It's a total self-governing organization when done biblically. Look at Titus 3.1. Titus 3.1. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility of all men. So he's saying remind them to be subject to. We are to choose to be subject, not to be coerced into it. Why? Because God expects us to operate based on consent of the governed. Children, obey your parents. It doesn't say parents slap your children around until they do what you tell them to. It doesn't say parents enslave your children. It says children, obey your parents. Okay, so God organized Israel based around self-governance. God organized the church based around self-governance. How did God organize the United States? Well, let's look at Romans chapter 13. I said we'd come back to this frequently. So the first question is, did God organize the United States? And the answer is yes. Romans 13.1 says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So if there's an authority, it was appointed by God. Who is the authority in the United States? I, I had somebody suggest that they would love to see a roving reporter ask people on the street, what are the first three words of the Constitution? And see how many people could... Uh, Repeat it. You'll all know. What is it? We the people. Yeah, everybody in here knew that. That's because you're smart people. 
We the people. Who did God appoint as the governing authority in the United States? Us. It's us. We are the leaders in a self-governing country. If we're going to be self-governing like the successful time during the period of the judges of Deborah and Barak, what do the leaders have to do? They have to lead. But you know what we did as the people, we the people, about 75 years ago or so? The professional politicians came and said, you know, why don't you just let us do we've got We've got the ability to spend full time on this. We're smarter than you are anyway. And why don't we just do all this hard governing work? And to some extent, they won a lot of credibility because of the way they prosecuted World War II. Won a lot of, a lot of credibility, and for good reason. And people said, you know, we can trust them. It's interesting that In God We Trust was adopted in the 50s after we started trusting the government. And we gave them an immense amount of authority and power because we trusted them. And what we were doing is stopping leading. And now what's happening is that same government has gone through a real interesting metamorphosis where now we have appointed representatives. Those representatives have largely insulated themselves from competition. The re-election rate of Congress for a particular 10-year period recently, I forget which it it was, but there were fewer people that lost contested primary races than died in office for incumbents. And the primary race is the only one that matters because 85% of representative races are in one-party districts. So what they do is they get us to focus on the general as though it really matters. There's no real a contest in the primary because uh, they have an overwhelming uh, advantage. They make it illegal to raise more than $2,000 or $2,500 per person, but you can give basically an infinite amount of money to the congressional committee. You, it's illegal to give individual money to a challenger, but you can give an unlimited amount of money to the political party. And the political party is controlled by who? By us, we the people? It's controlled by the political consultants and the politicians. So an infinite amount of money to the incumbent, very limited to the challenger. See a pattern? And then they go and say, hey, uh, you know what? We're going to have like nine people on our congressional staff. They're going to spend the vast majority of their time doing favors for people. We have the taxpayers are going to pay for us to mail into the district and communicate with people to tell them how wonderful we are. The incumbent has taxpayer-funded campaign staff, taxpayer-funded campaign communication, infinite amount of money. And if you want to be a challenger, you have $2,500. So you see how the deck is stacked? for the incumbent. So basically they've made it impossible to challenge them and they pretend like the general election works and it really doesn't, but they didn't stop there. They've delegated all their authority to this vast bureaucracy. So now the real laws in the United States today at the federal level are made by the administrative agencies, EPA and so forth. And when they make a law, it's the law of land. In the last 10 years, they've even put in police forces in these guys. They hadn't done much yet, but they have their own police force. So these guys have their own army. They make the laws. They decide the laws. And when they lose a court case that says that law is illegal, they say, too bad, and just keep on going. Why? Because they're not accountable to anybody. 
This, if we don't like if we don't like it, there's nobody to run an election against. And uh, Congress says you guys shouldn't be doing that kind of stuff. What's wrong with you? Why we're we're going to come down on you and do more favors for people. We're just going to we're just going to have to do a lot more favors. Come on everybody, if you come to me all you who are w- weary and laden, and I will give you rest. And I will do you favors. See? Now I'm you're even more beholden to me than you ever were before. It's corrupt. We now have judges that are accepting bribes. They're they're official. You know, they're legal bribes, but it's a self-serving. There was a poll that said less than 20% of Americans believe that their government has the consent of the government. Well, for good reason, because we don't. It, it, it's, it's been taken away from us. But whose fault is that? It's ours, because we're the leaders. Blessed be Israel in this day because the leaders led and the people volunteered. So what's the answer? Well, it starts in our individual lives. If we want to be self-governing in our individual lives, we need to trust God's word and adopt his perspective and make the choices he tells us will be choices that bless us. The alternative is to be a slave to sin. We can do that. God's given us the freedom to do that. But if we're a slave to sin, then we have all the negative consequences. We're still his child. If we've accepted Christ, then that's, a, that's something that Jesus does. But if we walk in sin, that's something we do. And we get the consequences of that. That's step number one. Step number two is we need to go into our sphere of influence and lead. Whatever that looks like for us. Each one of us has a different sphere of influence. We need to lead. And we need to volunteer. And when we lead and when we volunteer as the people of God, whatever that looks like, we're actually fighting the invading Midianite. We're actually fighting the spirit of tyranny. The spirit of tyranny comes in people's lives individually when we give ourselves over to sin. The spirit of tyranny is working in our country to try to basically undermine self-governance and put us into a situation where we have tyrannical rulers. In addition to leaders need to lead, people need to volunteer, uh, the faithful need to hold up the torch. You know, we individually need to speak what's true and, and shine the light in our spheres of influence. And when we do, we'll be shot at, likely. But that's, that's, that's the trusting God. We need to invite people to be heroes. Remember what the angel said to Gideon? Hey, you mighty man of valor. Well, I don't feel like a mighty man of valor. I don't know about you. But you know what? Each one of us are when we do what? When we do God, what God asks us to do. Just right where we are. What he asked Gideon to do didn't seem like much of a big deal, but it turned into a big deal. Invite people to be heroes. Be willing to be heroic yourself. That's what God's called us to do. Reluctant leaders need to discover their mighty men of valor, and that's, that's our women of valor, like Deborah. And that's what we all can do when we take one step, wherever that is. Spiritual leaders need to speak the truth. Remember the Deborah Bayrak thing all started because Deborah said, this is what God's asked us to do. And if, if we have influence with spiritual leaders... We need to ask them to speak the truth and not be afraid. The church needs to make disciples. God has given the authority to the church, and the church needs to be in the disciple-making process, not the convert-making process. We're not signing people up to vote. 
we're signing people up, we're tra- training people to be citizens. Before you can be a citizen, you've got to sign up to vote. But the point is to learn to be an effective citizen in the kingdom of God. So we need to make disciples. Each one of us needs to walk in obedience. What does that look like for you? I don't know. God will tell you that. And Christians need to understand that teaching others is a lifestyle. Teaching others is a lifestyle. It's not a, something you do once a week at a lunch meeting. You know, in the New Testament epistles, there's one instance where, God's, where God says, share your faith with others. One. It's in 1 Peter 3, and it says, When you are joyful, even though you're being persecuted for doing something righteous, and someone asks you, what's wrong with you? Why are you joyful? These people are mistreating you. Be ready to give them an answer for the hope that's within you. That's the only one. But you know what's on every page in the New Testament epistles? Live your faith. Speak the truth. Love others. Serve others. Elevate your spouse. It's on every page. Because teaching others is a lifestyle. This command to make disciples and teach others to obey my commandments, the most effective way of teaching is by demonstrating. So when we, the church understand that teaching others is a lifestyle, live that lifestyle, we walk in obedience, we walk in heroism, because when it's difficult and scary, we do it anyway. When we invite others to be heroes, when we lift up our torch, even in the face of adversity, when we volunteer and when we lead, we're doing our part. We're doing our part. And you know, that's all we can do can't make anybody else do their part. Right? Got 8 billion people in the world. How many can we make choices for? Just one. And that's all God asks us to do. Just make the choices for us. But you know what? If we let others make the choice for us, we're not doing our job either. We were invested with this amazing stewardship. We get to choose. And we're most like our maker when we're choosing. What an awesome opportunity. When it's dark, the light shines the brightest. And that's what God's called us to do, is be mighty lights. Self-governance starts in our hearts. It happens in our lives. It happens with our families. God called the church to be self-governing. He called us individually to be self-governing. But it only happens if we consent. God's not going to make us do it. That's a huge part of the scriptural narrative. God, thank you for your... Amazing choice to give us a choice. Help us understand your perspective. You make the cause effect. You choose that. Help us understand what that is and adopt it so we can so we can have life. Help us trust you. You know what's best. We don't know what's best. Help us just realize that and walk in it. And then God, help us choose actions that walk the path you call for us, not the path of uh, least resistance, uh, the world's way, but the path you call us to. Help us be heroic. Help us be bold in lifting our lights up. Whatever that looks like in our lives. And God, I pray that you would restore our country and restore self-governance in our governing structures. More importantly, Lord, I pray that you would bring self-governance into the hearts of your people and that they would walk in freedom and away from the bondage of sin. In Jesus' name, amen.